0: Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts,
1: a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together
0: with my co-host Morgan
1: and my co-host Christine.
0: So today we have an episode that's been sitting on the back burner for a long time.
1: Yeah, this was when I was still working on my dissertation and really busy. Christine did an interview with Mark Miller and um there were some audio issues with the recording
0: yeah so what happened was we sat down to well i we sat down as if we were going to record like we scheduled a time and i thought we were setting up the outline for the episode like figured we might make a, a bullet point list outline of how to structure this together um, and, uh, as, a, as a quick first exercise so that we know roughly where we're going to go in the conversation. And then we can start recording. How does that sound to you?
2: Uh, that sounds okay. I clicked on we that had link. We an pad I, uh, and we were uh, like
0: plodding through that. And then it turns out Mark thought that we were just recording. So I was like, wow, Mark really wants to get this outline very carefully in place before we start recording.
2: But I mean, we started off with you know, the sort of free-form discussion. That at the time I was thinking this is the podcast, and as we're discussing it now, it seems like this was that was not the that was not the the material you wanted to use as the podcast, but rather uh, having done that, we now have an outline of the podcast that you'd like to do. But so.
1: What ended up happening was Christine thought that they were outlining, and Mark thought that they were recording, so it ended up being about two hours worth of audio.
0: Yeah, and I, the the good news is that Mark did record, and uh, initially I was like, eh, well, I guess we'll just have to do this again at some point, but Mark gave me the audio, and and I actually thought it was quite good. It's just obvious that it was going to take, like, a lot of editing.
1: Which is why it wasn't published until now and the structure of this episode is going to be a little bit different to what we normally have it's going to be um things that are recorded right now to frame things interspersed with recording from that interview
0: and i guess we haven't really explained who mark miller is or why i would be excited to have him on the podcast
1: yeah so uh in 2019, at the first Activity Pub conference, Mark Miller was our keynote speaker.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we'll link in the show notes to the talk he gave. It's an interesting talk that kind of maps together some of the ideas from how you might build healthy, resilient communities with ideas from the object capability security world. And there, but, but I actually knew Mark going back about two years prior. I had met him at a conference called Rebooting Web of Trust, where he was, I was really excited to meet him because I had been studying about these ideas called object capability security. And I had been told that Mark's stuff was like the place to like, like the e-language was like the place to get all the ideas about object capability security. And I had tried kind of reading that website and didn't fully understand it. And then, you know, but I knew who Mark Miller was, the name of this person. And then, sure enough, at this conference, there's this Mark Miller person here. And it was just really exciting to speak to them about object capability security stuff. And they really kind of helped me understand a lot of the core stuff. And I would say that Sprightly couldn't have happened with if it wasn't for their help. Yeah, and I actually I even asked Mark, What's more interesting for you today? Would you like to do the discussion of distributed objects, or would you prefer to talk about the Mark Miller 30-year plan?
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, what's
0: what's more interesting to you?
2: Uh, the 30-year plan is, I think, probably altogether more interesting, but uh, today I think I'd rather uh, just do the distributed objects sort of more as a... As a um, let's just do distributed objects today.
1: So this episode is going to be a two-part series in the first one it will be christine and mark discussing kind of the history and then the second part will be how it's being deployed currently
0: and as we'll see the history even predates mark Mm -hmm. but mark's been involved in it all the way going back so maybe we should open up with uh that part of the conversation yeah so we basically opened up the interview with me asking, you know, what's the motivations? What what got you started and in interested in distributed objects? And uh, for you, I imagine that was actually kind of the Agoric Vision and the Xanadu stuff. Is that right? I guess to give some context to that framing I gave right there, Mark was involved both in the very early pre-modern web hypertext system uh, created by Ted Nelson called Xanadu, And he also, in the 80s, wrote this paper, this series of papers called the Agoric Papers, which kind of laid out this very ambitious, broad view of a distributed computing world and economy. And so I I was kind of priming him, is that what got you interested? But then Mark kind of immediately started getting into history, which both partly predated and ran in parallel to that work
2: yeah, and uh, for me, i I think I'm going to go ahead and credit this to the um, to the actor group at MIT, uh, led by Hewitt. The actor group was very, very influential on me early on, even before the grand aha that led to the agoric vision.
0: So actors are this famous paradigm in computer science if you're looking at distributed objects you're probably looking at something that has actors in some form
2: the actor group at mit really did have this vision of a uniformity of message passing uh, between local computation and distributed computation
0: The core of idea of actors is basically that you have this kind of society of cooperating objects and it doesn't really matter where they live and they just communicate by sending each other messages, the way that you might send a letter to somebody in the mail. And the idea is that pretty much everything in your system can be perceived of as an actor. And actors can be boiled down to having just these few properties. Basically, an actor can send messages to other actors it knows about, and it can create new actors and then therefore get a reference to the the, the actor it just created and share that reference with other actors should it choose using the previous rule. And also it can change its behavior in response to a message it receives. And that's
2: it. Uh, it was years okay. later that I found that wonderful Alan Kay quote where he conceives of object-oriented computation metaphorically as a bunch of little computers talking to each other in a network. But the Alan Kay quote, is still a metaphor because there's too many particulars like immediate synchronous call-return and, uh, and lack of concurrency that make uh, objects not truly uniform with distributed computation. But it's fascinating that it was close enough that uh, uh, when Hewitt and the actor group saw the Small Talk presentations, the presentation that Alan Kay did on Small Talk 72 at MIT, that mm-hmm. they were, you know, that's part of what inspired Hewitt to, for, the, for the first synthesis of the actor paradigm. And mm-hmm. uh, actors, by uh, incorporating asynchrony deeply uh, and having no action at a distance, by having everything be local uh, point-to-point messaging and asynchronous really did come up with a computational paradigm that, in most ways, was equally applicable to local and distributed. And that was the that was for me a big inspiration early on.
0: I just want to pause for a moment to kind of observe the power that studying actors has had on a number of people, including myself. Uh, so. Mark remarked here about how the actor group itself was inspired by these lectures by Alan Kay, and his kind of vision for what computing could be like. And Carl Hewitt, who led the actors group, of course, was not the only person who worked on actors you in fact, I'm going to link to an article by my friend Tony Garnock Jones, which is kind of contains a history of actors. But The important thing here is to realize that when you're trying to tackle something as ambitious as computation that can happen anywhere, that can involve kind of society-level cooperation of computing, that things can boil down to something that kind of has almost a physics of such simplicity, right? You know, with just such a few rules. Um, Just like how understanding kind of the laws of physics in our reality can unlock the ability to develop more complicated systems from those physics, uh, understanding actors can can open up a lot. So now you have enough grounding to be able to kind of think about what distributed objects kind of are at their core. But anyway, let's get back to Mark, who at this point was kind of
2: getting pretty deep into history. Then when I joined um, Xerox PARC in 1985, I, uh, 85 no 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 i don't remember what year i joined um the no it was 85.
0: was alan still working there at the time out of curiosity alan being the slightly well-known in computer science circles alan k
2: no no alan was long gone but alan and i knew each other uh, we knew okay. each other through ted nelson okay gotcha yeah and uh alan was was you know huge influence on me but on this particular thing the, the distributed nature, uh, that was really, uh, you know, the actors group. Uh, there was some interesting work on distributed small talk. And later, while I was at Park, uh, Randy Smith and Dave Unger did distributed arc, alternate reality kit. But okay. both of them were kind of force fit because they were starting with a sequential call return language, whereas mm-hmm. with the actor paradigm, it was very natural. Uh, so I'm, I'm really doing this in a historical order here.
0: And history is good, and there's a lot of it in this episode, but it's kind of important to understand motivation. So at this point, I kind of backed up and asked Mark, you know, that, that's all great, but it would be helpful for, you know, our audience to understand what got you excited and motivated about all this. So, so...
2: I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: Uh, so I'm capture I'm trying to capture some of this as you say it, um, though I think the initial thing I was asking was kind of what the personal motivations, because I assume that it, for you, um, it wasn't, it was, for, for me, it wasn't just a computer science theory, it's what I wanted to do with it. And so I was kind of asking in some ways, uh, was there, was there motivations of what kind of things you wanted to achieve, or did you kind of discover that along the way? Um, I do know that you got involved in Xanadu very, like right out of college, right?
2: Yeah, okay, that's, that's, um, yes, Uh, actually, uh, before I left college, actually, uh, the, in 1976 maybe, uh, somebody handed me, I was in college, uh, somebody handed me a copy of Ted Nelson's Computer Lib Dream Machines, I got tremendously Taken with it, especially the the vision of hypertext, but a lot of things. I mean, it was just the a vision of the future of interactive, you know, interactive user interfaces and distributed computing. And it was just it was an amazing book, Uh, but hypertext and Xanadu was kind of the central uh, theme of it in a way, and certainly the thing that grabbed me the most. Now,
0: if you haven't heard of Ted Nelson or Dream Machines or Computer Lib, uh, you, you might want to look it up. It's this very, very influential piece of computing history. Um, and, and Mark's going to talk about it more. But it had this vision for how computing could really be something that could em- empower people in a way that I think hadn't really hit kind of the forefront of culture prior to that moment. And If you're a web developer or maybe even user of the web these days, the idea of hypertext probably does not seem all that amazing, but that's because we have it now and today. And Xanadu envisioned this this idea of what hypertext could be and how it could really change the way that people communicate, collect information, and so on, Uh, in in some ways and many ways captured by the web as kind of rolled out by um, Tim Berners-Lee and, and, and so on, bringing those visions forward, but uh, in some ways, even kind of broader and, and more kind of dramatically revolutionary of a vision than that. Uh,
2: I contacted uh, Ted at the time and ended up uh, spending uh, each of the summers after that point uh, apprenticing myself to Ted. Uh uh, no fee uh, eventually for uh, equity in Xanadu that turned out to be that turned out uh, never to be worth anything but um but I, nevertheless I thought I always liked the idea of apprenticeship and when I read computer Librarian machines and met Ted I decided that this was the person I wanted to apprentice myself to uh, which I thought was a you know looking back on it has been a was a great decision and Xanadu was where we all had a very freedom-oriented, freedom activist oriented attitude towards building technology. Very much in anticipation of, uh, not in anticipation, but kind of an early form of what eventually became the cypherpunk ethos. We definitely had that with regard to our view of distributed publishing as a liberating decentralizing force for humanity
0: um of course if you listen to this show you know that user freedom is basically at the heart of what we're trying to explore and what's kind of interesting is that uh, for those of us who have worked on computing especially distributed computing as having this vision of being something that could really benefit humanity and and could actually be really important in a political way. uh, What you can see here is that that's not a new idea that that really goes all the way back.
2: This was even before the Agoric Open System. I'm sorry. Even before the RSA paper came out, even before I knew about public key cryptography, uh, we already had the goals kind of in place that we wanted to build a publishing system that was Immune from censorship, immune from monitoring, and immune from manipulation. Uh, you know, with strong integrity, and strong confidentiality, um, and strong availability. Uh, and and we very much saw that as a political struggle, as much as anything else. Uh, Ted and I were both deeply affected by George Orwell's 1984, uh, and knew that computers could go, could take society in that direction, or it could take them in a freedom direction. Uh, mm-hmm. And then with the uh, publication of the RSA paper, when we became aware of that, suddenly I felt like now I know how to go in that direction. It, I was...
0: If you aren't familiar with the RSA papers or with the RSA in general, uh, RSA stands for Rivest Shamir Edelman, And that is basically the algorithm and the first system, which demonstrated what's called uh, public key cryptography today. A very short, oversimplified version of public key cryptography is that if you have a public key, you can encrypt information that you can send to somebody so that that other person who has possession of the private key will be able to open and read That information, but that encrypted information can thus be hidden in plain sight, right? So it can be put. um, You can transfer it through channels that you might not fully trust, with the uh, confidentiality of the information being able to be intact. Uh, The other thing that the RSA papers showed was how to uh, use very similar, um, well, really kind of the same math tricks to do what's called public key cryptography signatures, so that. the person with the private key can sign documents such that anyone else who has possession of the public key is able to verify that they were signed by that private key. And this opened up the ability to make secure communications and computation possible even in hostile networks.
2: And you know, elsewhere I've told the whole story about my involvement in trying to get the RSA paper out there, despite government suppression, so I won't tell. I won't retell that here. We'll share
0: resources to that history uh, in the show notes. But the short version of it is that it was illegal in the U.S. to be able to share software or the algorithms for how to build the software to do this kind of advanced encryption. Uh, and so, Mark Miller and some others uh, actually performed civil disobedience at severe le- legal risk to themselves. Uh, to To publish that information and to get that cryptography out there, so we we really have a lot to thank of uh, the cypherpunks for making it so that we can live in a, po- a world where which is highly electronic and yet we still have some degree of privacy and uh, autonomy really in networks today.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But uh, in any case, when I when I became enthused about distributed objects, it was very much consistent with that. Uh, Partially, it was political. Partially, it was also just the exciting aesthetics of a young technologist who's first learning to think about the world in computational terms and think about computation in programming language terms. And the actor model was just incredibly elegant and simplifying and uniform and powerful and expressive. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was inherently secure in a decentralized sense, uh, in the sense that uh, there was no central policy enforcement. It was uh, everything protecting itself from everything else and being able to expressively interact with things that, that were mutually suspicious. So Hewitt's papers early on made the connection with the capability operating system literature and, uh, made a, uh, and speculated about the security property of actors and didn't follow up on that. But to me, that was really kind of central and was probably kind of central because of my mixed technology and political orientation.
0: In other words, Actors had the right property of you only have the ability to perform computation on those other actors that you have the references to that made them a candidate for object capability security, Uh, even though this is something that uh, Mark kind of realized more in full as things go on. Um, For example, you could have an actor that represents a file on the file system. And only the other actors that have um, the reference to that file, that have the address, can send messages to read or write from that file. And in fact, that actor, you could choose to create a read-only version of that file by creating another actor which um, has reference to that file but only passes through the read method but doesn't pass through the write method. Uh, And it turns out that's basically that kind of composition is sufficient to build the very kind of security properties that exist in both Mark's systems and mine, uh, largely inspired by the work that Mark and others have done. Uh,
2: eventually in 85, I went to Xerox PARC, eventually maybe 87, uh, 86, 86 uh, formed the, uh, was one of the people who formed the Vulcan group uh, together with Dean Triple and uh, Danny Bobro. Uh, at Xerox Park, who's um, uh, now deceased. But the Vulcan group was taking uh, Udi Shapiro's flat concurrent prologue language and turning it into something that had all of the virtues of an actor language while still retaining all of the virtues of a distributed logic programming language. and suddenly I felt like a lot of the things that you could code in actors in theory, but when you actually wrote them down, turned into a large amount of awkward code. Suddenly with flat concurrent prologue, we felt like we were saying a lot of these things with small amounts of elegant code. So it really kind of amplified the sense that this uniform distributed computing thing was powerful.
0: Uh-huh. Is, is that partly, was that the predecessor for to Jewel then?
2: Yes, it was. Yes, it was. I'm just going to contextualize that a
0: little bit. If you have listened to the episodes about Spritely uh, on this podcast, you've probably heard me talk about the E programming language, which ended up being such a large influence on Spritely that I think Spritely couldn't have happened without it. So Jewel is the predecessor to E and therefore, the Flat control Concurrent Prologue being the predecessor to Joule, we're kind of seeing that history progress in this part of that story.
2: Uh, so Joule is mostly the work of Dean Trouble. The central insight of Joule uh, goes back to a paper that uh, Dean was the primary author of that we did in the Vulcan Project on channels that was done in Flat Concurrent Prologue that then became the central abstraction. It was done as a pattern in centra- in Flak and Current Prologue, and then Channels became the central abstraction of Jewel.
0: It's so. Wait, I want to check one thing about Channels. Was that more of a, um, a CSP type direction than an actor type direction? As in, and I, by that I mean partly because I didn't realize that this was the episode we were recording. I'm not defining my terms, so let me define it here. CSP stands for Communicating Sequential Processes. It's by Tony Hoare. And along with actors, it's considered kind of the other really fundamental um, system talking about asynchronous communication. Uh, In fact, actors can be implemented on top of CSP or vice versa. But the big difference is that in communicating sequential processes, when two processes uh, communicate, they actually do what's called rendez- they rendezvous, basically. So they both sit there and wait for a message to come in via some sort of channel, um, or set something up where they say, I could get a message via this kind of composition of these number of channels. Um, so part of the big difference there is that the processes, if they, nobody else shows up, they can kind of get frozen in place uh, and not have any real way to be able to continue. Um, so by contrast, actors don't rendezvous when an actor sends a message to another actor, it basically fires it off the way that you might drop off a letter in your mailbox. And, you know, it just waits for whatever other letters to come into its mailbox. And as Mark's going to explain, there's a big reason why you want to do this in large distributed systems, because you don't want your systems to mysteriously kind of lock and freeze up. It's just too hard to do that think of it this way. Imagine you need to tell your coworker Alice a message. So you could go to Alice's desk and stand there and wait for Alice to show up at her desk so that you can give her this important message. But if Alice is over waiting at Bob's desk to wait for Bob to show up to give him a message, but Bob is over at your desk waiting for you to show up, to give you a message, then all of you are just going to stand around because none of you are going to actually show up at your desks anytime soon because you're kind of all waiting on each other. Um, by contrast, what you could do is just send Alice an email and Alice gets to it whenever Alice gets to it and then can you know send you a response whenever she's able. So that former version is the communicating sequential processes version and the latter is the... Actor's version. Uh,
2: Okay. in 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 flat concurrent prolog, it's kind of a matter of how you want to describe it. Uh, A predicate, a a tail recursive predicate.
0: All right. Get ready for some super jargon. If you don't follow this, that's okay. It's I'm leaving it in for the super language nerds.
2: You can think of it as waiting for the data to match the predicate head and then the predicate fires and does its next iteration which would be describing it as a polling model or you can describe it as when the goal is posted it invokes the predicate and the predicate fires which is more of an actor account Uh, in Joule, it was very clearly an actor account the interesting thing about channels is that it It took a look at the actor experience and the concurrent prologue experience with regard to communications abstractions and said that flat concurrent prologue, it was very powerful on the receiving side by reifying the ability to receive into a first class capability that could be passed around and the ability to receive a first message versus the ability to receive the rest of the messages after that first message. It enabled all sorts of patterns by reifying the channel on the receiving side, but concurrent prologue was really terrible on the sending side, because when you sent a message on a logic variable, you also used up the logic variable. So there was this whole little sub-literature in in the flat concurrent prologue-like languages Including flat and Current Prologue itself, on merge networks to try to essentially work around the fact that the sending capability was a use once capability. So if you wanted a reusable ability to send to an abstraction, you had to build patterns around it. Still with us?
0: Let me get meta for a second. You may have noticed that things have gotten very jargony by this point and very, very kind of deep in the weeds language-wise. I love this kind of stuff. But one of the reasons this episode took so long to get out is that the previous kind of jargon you heard and there's a lot more of that type of stuff ahead. And knowing how general of an audience I should try to make this for was pretty difficult. So... I think I also struggled with how much of this should I cut out and try to curate. And I'm going to make the kind of weird decision here and say I'm not going to remove that much. Uh, The section that you just previously heard, there's a lot more of that type of stuff ahead. And the reason for that is I'm not sure how many other places this information and history is collected. When I try to look up information on flat concurrent prologue, One of the few places you can read anything about it is in Mark Miller's own writings about E, a programming language that few other people know about. So I think this is probably an episode that may be really important for some kinds of software archaeology in the future. And I don't want to lose it. But let's get back to Mark.
2: So the Jewel Channel took the the multiple send nature of actor mailboxes and the reified receive nature of flat concurrent prologue patterns in terms of logic variables and combined them. Just said that the Joule channel is the fundamental abstraction of Joule and it's actor-like on the sending side and concurrent prologue-like on the receiving side Um, which sounds like it's splicing together two paradigms, but in splicing it together, we really created a distinct paradigm that that when you're in Joule, it doesn't feel like a hybrid of two other paradigms. It just feels like a new thing. And the Joule channel was influential on our invention of of our notion of promises, uh, an early form of which was in Xanadu, uh, but those were still blocking promises. They had promise pipelining.
0: Promises, like in JavaScript? Yes, in fact, JavaScript's promises came from the e-programming language, which came from Juul, right, in its in its derivation of promises, which also derived its stuff from uh, Xanadu stuff, right? So all of this language nerdery, kind of getting into the details it does have an effect on what kind of abstractions you have available in your languages today. And actually the version of promises that you have in JavaScript are not the full, really exciting version of promises that E provides. And part of that is what Mark's describing as promise pipelining, which is basically a a really convenient way to be able to kind of send messages to the results of promises before they're even decided basically sending messages to objects before they even exist sometimes, which is pretty wild. Uh, You can actually kind of chain these things together over the network. And Sprightly Goblins, uh, I will say, does implement the full version of E's Promises.
2: We were scooped on that by Barbara Liskov and Lubia Shria that had just published, it turns out, on promise pipelining, very similar to what we did at Xanadu, uh, published it the year before we independently reinvented it, uh, but in any case, uh, then uh, later on when I left Agoric for Electric Communities, and took up the e language that had uh, that had happened at ele- that had happened electric at Electric Communities, the e language initially had been splicing dual channels onto a Java base. Uh, and that was what we now call original E. Then I did the, the modern E language, the one that we went open source with, with that uh, was no longer had a a Java language base. It was still implemented uh, by interpreter written in Java and running on the JVM, but it had no strong tie to Java in terms of the language definition. It was not Java-like in that sense. And um, but the big, but the other big change was I dropped the full dual channel and went to our modern notion of non-blocking promises, the ones that ended up in uh, JavaScript, and the resolver of the non-blocking promise, uh, in some sense, some distant sense, uh, comes from that sort of a a simplified form of the drill channel in a way It's certainly inspired by the drill channel
0: so here's why i think this is interesting keep in mind that at this point in history actors have been written about um alan Kay has inspired a bunch of people talking about kind of this vision of computing the way it could be ted nelson has gotten people excited about you know kind of this political version of computing that also involves this kind of revolution in the way that people communicate and mark and uh and company have been writing in the agoric papers and and other kind of literature about this v- of this vision of like and here's what computing will look like if we actually put together all these pieces from an a, a economic and social perspective but like people don't really have examples of this stuff in action, right? How do you program this as a programmer, right? What's it like to build something that fulfills all these semantics? So I'm going to argue that while the e-programming language and Sprightly Goblins and a Gork system today, you know, these are all examples of systems that are kind of implementing this in... Um, what, what we'll kind of advocate is kind of the right way to do it with the VAT model of computation. That didn't exist. Nobody had figured out how to get there. So this exploration of Joule and its channels as being a way to actually program in an actor-like environment. This is really important in terms of the history of being able to discover how to move from these abstract theories and these you know, broad ideas of how the future might work into something that is actually in programmers' hands and is actually possible to build useful working implementations of those ideas in practice. So I think I'm going to cut this as one episode right here. We still have plenty of conversation ahead from the interview that Mark and I did together. And we're going to release that as one, maybe two more episodes, probably two, let's be honest. And so from here, we're going to kind of zip back into the past a little bit more to get into kind of a parallel piece of history with the actors versus Scheme and Lambda debate and also kind of how these, some more details about how you might implement these things and then kind of also get to what we think are some of the right decisions on how to actually implement distributed objects in a way that people can use. Oh yeah, and E, of course, expect us to get into the E programming language a lot more. So that's all the episodes coming up. Um, I hope you've enjoyed what we've had so far, and I guess see you in the next one.
1: Wait, wait, right before we released this episode, we got a new Patreon supporter.
0: Oh, that's right. So in the mega supporter tier.
1: Thank you to Christopher Rodriguez.
0: Okay, wait. Now are we done with the episode?
1: Yes, now we're done with the episode.
0: All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution ShareAlike Alike 4.0 International License.
1: It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber.
0: The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show.
1: The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waived into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information.
0: You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts, at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org.
1: We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat.
0: If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Foss and Crafts.
1: That's it for this week.
0: Until next time, stay free.
1: And stay crafty.
0: Okay, great. Then we're then we're able to collaboratively edit through the magic of CRDTs. Um,
2: oh, is this okay. actually a CRDT?
0: Uh, yeah, it's Etherpad, which I think uh, was actually it was acquired by one of the major uh, office suite things at one point. I think it might have actually at one point. I don't remember exactly what happened. I think they might've been bought by like the two, the, I, I don't remember exactly what happened. I, I thought I remembered that it was either Google docs or it was Microsoft or something like that. This was like one of the, the, the team that worked on the collaborative editing stuff had done this beforehand or something along those lines, but this remained as the open source application that anyone can run okay. uh, from that kind of legacy.
2: Okay. Google Docs, I believe, is operational transform, which brings about a very similar effect to CRDTs, but it's not a CRDT.
0: Uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong, and it's not CRDTs. It might be operational transform as well. I don't remember the exact history. Uh, so, uh, but so, so if I got the, the, the particular algorithm approach wrong, I apologize.
2: <laughs> Apology accepted.